This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On November 15th, 1888, 21-year-old Hanna dotter marries 26-year-old Per Nilsson and moves in with him and his mother. About four months later, Hanna is found dead on the bottom of the basement stairs. But she didn't fall down the stairs and die, as it first looked like. She was actually strangled to death. But who killed her? And why? Hi, and welcome to episode 30 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. When I'm recording this, it's only five days until I'm in Chicago for the True Crime Podcast Festival. I'm so looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing to meet listeners and also all the other podcasters that I've talked to online but never met. You can join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook if you want some updates from the event. Today's case was a listener's suggestion from uh, Sandra Widman in the Facebook discussion group. Thank you so much, Sandra. And the episode is researched and written by Johanna Udstol Friberg. Thank you, Johanna. And if you didn't know, Johanna will be joining me in Chicago for the event. It's going to be so great. Well, let's get over to today's case. It'll start on March 28, 1889, at about 11 a.m. Farmer Anders Olsson, living in the village of Yngsjö in the south of Sweden, knocked on the door of his neighbor's. Per Nilsson's house. Per lived on a farm called Mölle. It was an estate that had been in Per's family for many generations. And since his father's death some years back, the 27-year-old Per was the man of the house. Anders had been at the house two hours prior, but no one was home at that time. That seemed kind of strange to Anders, since Per's wife, Hanna, also lived there. The farmer, Anders Olsson, had left Hanna the night before in a very upset state, so he wanted to swing by to ask how she was doing today. But from what he could understand, only Per was home. So Anders asked Per where Hanna was at, and with a very confused look upon his face, he said, I don't know, really. Perhaps she's at a neighbor's or something. Anders was suspicious, considering last night's events. 
so we asked Per to go look for her. Per started looking for his wife, Hanna. He walked past the kitchen on his way to the living room, turned around and walked back to the hallway, where he opened the door on the left to the farmhand's chamber. And as he was walking through the door, he said to Anders, Look, the hatch to the basement is wide open. With Anders soon by his side, they both looked down, and Per said, Oh no, there she is, dead and all, with a neutral tone to his voice, according to Anders. Anders, on the other hand, was shocked by the sight of Hanna. He started screaming from the top of his lungs so loudly that people on the street could hear him. It wasn't long before another neighbor, also called Anders, stormed through the door, asking what was going on. In contrast to Anders and Pad, the other neighbor, Anders Andersson, immediately climbed down the basement stairs to try to get Hanna out of there. It was obvious, just by looking at her body, that she hadn't fallen down the stairs by accident. Her neck was clearly showing a deep red line, as if someone had tightened a noose around it. However, the someone had removed it before leaving her dead body at the bottom of the stairs in the basement, trying to make it look like she fell. But let's go back further in time to understand what led up to this. It all started in 1860. Miller Nils Nilsson from Yngsjö was looking for a wife to run the Mölle farm with him. After talking to some important people in the village, it was decided that Anna Månsdotter was a perfect match. She was the daughter of late farmer Mons Nilsson and his wife Anna Tuvestotter. Anna Tuvestotter was recently widowed and was anxious about her children's future now that they were without a man in the house. When Nils Nilsson approached her about her daughter, Anna, she thought of it as a gift from the man above. Her daughter, Anna Månsdotter, had long brown hair, a long face, and she was 172 centimeters tall. That's about 5'8". Just a quick side note here about these people's last names. So far, we have heard variations of names ending in both son and daughter. This is not a coincidence. Let me tell you why. In the Swedish Middle Ages, people were often named with by names. Something that would differentiate one person named Thomas from the other. For example, if someone had a crooked leg, they would be called Thomas the Limp and everyone in the community would know who people were talking about. Harald Fairhair was a Scandinavian king in the 15th century. Erik the Lisbon Lame was another example of na- this naming convention. Last names weren't really family names back then. They weren't inherited from generation to generation as today. 
In the second half of the 16th century, the Swedish nobility started using family names. Most often, they were derived from symbols of their coat of arms. Bjelke, Uggla, and Leonhuvud are examples of this. The meaning of those names are beam, owl, and lion's head. Soldiers of the 18th and 19th century had last names that were forced upon them by the military. They were assigned a last name when they enlisted. These names were often based on the character of the soldier. For example, a happy-go-lucky man would be named Anders Glad. Glad means cheerful. A bulky guy would be called Johan Stark. Stark means strong, and so on. But most people were neither famous for their appearance, nor nobility, or a soldier. Those people had last names based on their father's name. A daughter of a man called Johan was called Johans daughter, Johans daughter. And a son of a man called Johan will therefore be called Johans son. Up until this day, the three most common last names in Sweden are Andersson, Johansson, and Karlsson. And we still spell them with two S's. Johansson. Johans son. J-O-H-A-N-S-S-O-N. But I've noticed that in the U.S. you have removed one of the S's in the son names, like Larsson or Johansson. That's enough of that. Back to Anna Månsdotter, who was born in 1842 to parents Måns Nilsson and Anna Tuvesdotter. From an early age, Anna was a demanding child. She was not easily pleased and she cried a lot as a baby, and she didn't change her ways growing up. As a teenager, she was very moody and complained about everything you could ever imagine. When her father died, things got even worse. She couldn't wait to get married to a handsome rich man who could take care of her. When her mother suggested that she marry Nils Nilsson, she was super excited. He had a great reputation in the village of Yngsjö and it was known that he was a wealthy man. In 1861, When Anna was 19 years old, she married Nils Nilsson and moved in with him in the estate called Mölle. Nils was 13 years older than his wife and their marriage started fairly well. They had three children, but only one son, Per, survived childhood. Per was born in 1862. What Nils hadn't disclosed to his mother-in-law, Anna Tuvesdotter, or to his new wife, Anna Månsdotter, was the fact that his financial situation wasn't exactly what he had made it out to be. 
Nils was said to be rich, but in fact, it was all a big lie. The money Nils inherited from his father were all gone. He had spent it all and made some bad decision regarding the estate. The Miller business wasn't profitable, and every month they had to borrow money from friendly neighbors. And in years when the weather was against him and the crops failed, were the worst. They could barely make ends meet a normal year, and it was unbearable when there was no crop to mill. The financial situation took its toll on the relationship between Anna and Nils. They had also lost two of their children, and things were dire. Anna was not a positive person to begin with, and she had hoped for a different life than what Nils was given her. She felt betrayed by him, and they grew further apart each year. In 1877, the son in the family, Pad, was 15 years old and was about to have his confirmation in church. Once a child had gone through his or her confirmation, they were considered to be of age in those days. As Anna was preparing for her son's big day, her husband Nils fell ill. He had been struggling with a nasty cough for a few months, and he had lost a lot of weight due to poor appetite. But it wasn't until the summer of 1877 that it got really bad. Nils just couldn't get out of bed for more than a few minutes at a time. He just left the bed to go to the bathroom. Anna, being the type of person that she was, couldn't stop complaining about his weakness. What kind of a man lies in bed for days? She would yell at him when he could barely breathe from all the coughing. At last she called for the doctor, since she couldn't stand his complaining anymore. The doctor quickly diagnosed Nils with tuberculosis, an infectious disease that generally affects the lungs. The classic symptoms of tuberculosis are a chronic cough, often containing blood, fever, night sweats, and weight loss. Anna was furious. How dare he bring a lethal infection into the house? She immediately decided to move out of their bedroom and started sleeping in the kitchen on a wooden sofa. Summer came and went. And the son, Pad, who was only 15 years old, was now acting as the man of the house. He took care of the daily chores and learned how to manage the finances from Nils, who was still bound to his bed. Anna's resentment towards her husband Nils grew by the day. And when the fall came, something that would be the defining moment of this whole story started. It was in the fall of 1877. Anna had been sleeping on the wooden sofa in the kitchen for a couple of months now, and her son, Pad, resided in his room on the other side of the house. Nils, the father, was not getting any better, and he spent most of his days just resting in the bedroom. One night, 
Pad woke up in the middle of the night, and when he walked through the kitchen to go outside, Anna called him over and asked him to lay down next to her. He obliged. What happened between them that night is not established, but it's believed that when Pad agreed to get under the covers with his mother, an incestuous relationship between them started. According to what was later revealed in the trial, Anna lured him into sleeping in her bed that night. Multiple witnesses later testified to the fact that they had seen Per sleeping in the same bed as Anna all the time. I must say, though, that Per and Anna never confessed to having been intimate with each other, but it was the rumor going around town. It's been said that Pad and his mother Anna kept the habit of sleeping in the same bed for many years to come. Nils was supposedly unaware of what was going on. At least, there are no records that he ever knew what was going on. Life on the farm kept on at a steady pace for six more years until the father, Nils, passed away on June 23, 1883, at the age of 55. Anna was 41 years old, and Pad was now 21. It was now widely known around the village of Yngsjö that Anna and Pad shared a bed. People started talking about the sinful life at the Mölle farm, even though no one had ever seen them actually being intimate with each other. Townspeople who confronted Anna about this got the reply that she was afraid of the dark and didn't want to sleep alone in her bedroom. But everyone around had their minds made up about the actual situation on the farm, and they were disgusted. Without proof, they couldn't bring it to the authorities, though. When Nils had been dead for almost five years, a neighbor walked by the Mölle estate and started talking to Pad about his future. The neighbor knew about the financial struggles the family had endured for decades, and he wanted to help. Sure, he had heard the gossip about Anna and Pad, but he didn't believe what he was hearing. Instead, he told Pad about this girl, Hanna, who lived in the nearby village of Björstorp. She was the daughter of the wealthy mayor of Yngsjö, Johan Olsson. Hanna, Johan's daughter, was 21 years old and ready for marriage. Per talked to his mother Anna about what the neighbor had told him about Hanna, Johan's daughter. They both agreed that this may just be what they had been waiting for. A chance to get out of debt once and for all. Hannah could definitely make a huge difference in their financial situation. Anna also considered the fact that the town gossip was becoming increasingly bothersome. If Pad married Hannah, those rumors would stop immediately. And there was also the fact that Pad was an only child. There was no one to inherit the estate, and a couple of children would take care of that. So Per placed a visit to Mayor Johan Olsson, 
to ask him for his daughter Hanna's hand in marriage. Hanna herself was cautiously optimistic towards this semi-handsome suitor, Pad. After this initial meeting, Pad and Hanna started a male conversation, letters that were later part of the murder trial hearings. It looked as if there was a good chance for marriage in the near future. The families had negotiated the terms of the arrangement. Hanna's father would pay half of what the Mölle farm was worth to Anna Månsdotter in exchange for the marriage between Hanna and Pär. The sum of money was 1,500 kronor. If it had been in 2019, it would have been about 165,000 kronor, or roughly 15,000 US dollars. Not a fortune, but a substantial amount, even today. The only thing left was for Hanna to meet her future mother-in-law in person. So a meeting was arranged between Hanna and Anna. To say that the atmosphere was hostile would be an understatement. Hanna tried to keep her spirits up and ask polite questions about Anna's family and her upbringing. But Anna was relentless. She didn't like her. As soon as she laid eyes on Hanna, she knew she hated her. In her eyes, Hanna had everything that Anna had ever wanted. She was brought up in a loving home with all the immaterial luxury one could ever want. Her father was an influential man that a lot of people admired. There was so much about Hanna that Anna could despise. Following the first meeting between Hanna and Pash's mother, Anna Månsdotter, the content of the letters the two of them exchanged really changed in character. Suddenly, Hanna had a change of heart. She told Pär she wasn't ready for marriage and that they should call off the whole thing. But the process was too far along. It was too late. Hanna had to do what her father told her to. So she put on the wedding dress on November 15, 1988, and said, I do, to Pär. Because that's what you did if you were a woman in the 19th century. You did as you were told, and you didn't make a scene. Even if your whole future was on the line. Hanna moved into the Mölle farm the day after the wedding. The problem was that the mother, Anna, she didn't move out. She did move out of Pash's bedroom, though. But Anna stayed put and took every opportunity to complain about everything that Hanna did wrong in the household. Not much is known about the first couple of weeks of Pash and Hanna's marriage. But on December 1st, a man called Jöns Pärsson, who was working as a farm worker for hire, he moved in. He had a lot to say about the life at the Mölle estate later during the trial. He told the court many stories about how awful Anna had treated Hanna. She would yell and scream at her for no apparent reason. But he also witnessed physical abuse 
Per saw it too, but he didn't put a stop to it. He just couldn't stand up to his mother. It must have been a nightmare for Hanna, living with Per and his mother, Anna. Another proof of abuse at the Mölle estate before the murder were Hanna's own letters to her family. On January 12, 1889, about two months after the wedding, Hanna wrote, Dear parents, I must write you to tell you something that happened last night. After my sister and her husband left our house, I started crying because I will miss them so much. Mother-in-law came into the room and started yelling at me for no reason at all. The letter continues like that. A heartbreaking cry for help from a vulnerable young girl to her parents. In the letter, she also begged her father to pay the dowry as soon as possible to make Anna move out of the house. As soon as the letter reached Hanna's parents, they took action. Mayor Johan Olsson immediately traveled to the village of Yngsjö to see his daughter, and he promised to pay the dowry as soon as his financial situation allowed for such a cash output. To alleviate some of the stress from Hanna, he also offered to pay to have a small house built in the front yard for Anna to live in. Anything to get Anna Månsdotter to move out of the house in Mölle. In the months following the first letter Hanna sent to her parents, Hanna's father Johan started talking to some people in their hometown of Björstorp about possibly purchasing an estate for the couple over there. Hanna didn't know what was going on until late February. By that time, Johan had more than an idea in his head. He had made plans. If they sold the Mölle estate and moved closer to him instead, Anna, the mother-in-law, would have to stay behind and Hanna would be free. Or at least as free as she could be in that marriage to Per. But it wasn't long before someone found out about their plans to sell the Mölle farm. And this someone also told Anna, and she wasn't pleased. It is also believed that Hanna, sometime between January and March of 1889, found out about the fact that Anna and Pad used to share a bed and confronted Pad about it. Pad told his mother Anna about the confrontation and she got really upset. After that moment, Anna started planning to get rid of Hanna once and for all. Sure, she had helped get the estate back on its financial feet, and she could probably mother a couple of children. But if she was planning on moving out of Yngsjö and take Pad with her, she just had to go. Per, who we now know is not 
exactly the independent type, just nodded when his mother told him about the plan to have Hanna killed on March 27, 1889. Anna had it all figured out. Pad would hit Hanna in the head with a log of wood when they were in bed that same night. And as she was down, Pad should strangle her to death. When Hanna was dead, they would both dump her down the basement stairs to make it look like she had an accident while going about her daily routine. The plan was solid as a rock, they thought. So this was what happened to poor Hanna Johan's daughter in the morning hours of March 28th, 1889. And you already know how she was found by neighbor Anders and her own husband Pad. As more neighbors were called to the house to see what was going on, it wasn't long before people started saying out loud that Hanna must have been murdered. But instead of getting a police officer to the scene, they turned to the parson of the local church. I guess this says more about the role religion played in the lives of these people than anything else. Anyway, the parson quickly made the decision to contact the local medical examiner. Apparently, back in those days, these forensic experts were not a part of the police force. On March 30th, two days after Hanna's murder, the medical examiner came to Ingsjö to conduct the autopsy. The results were crystal clear. Hanna had been strangled to death. Her father, Johan, who also was the mayor of Ingsjö and an important man in the community, was brought to the Mölle farm to question the main suspects, Pär and his mother, Anna. They were the only people with a motive to have Hanna killed, considering what had been going on with the Mölle estate and also considering the rumors of the relationship between mother and son. Johan started questioning Pad, who denied having anything to do with the murder. Anna said the same thing. She knew nothing about Mölle or Hanna. Neighbor Anders, who had found the body, also had a word with Pad, trying to get the truth out of him. Both mother and son kept to their stories, though. How Pad had left early in the morning and Hanna must have fallen down the basement stairs. And Anna hadn't even been on the farm that day, which of course wasn't true. But on April 2nd, five days after the murder, Pad finally caved after constant interrogation by both Johan and by multiple neighbors. He confessed to hitting Hanna in the head with a rolling pin and then strangling her to death. But he also clearly stated that his mother, Anna, didn't have anything to do with the murder. It wasn't until they had a confession from Pär that the police were brought to Ingsjö. They conducted a more thorough investigation, hearing witnesses and documenting what had been said. Not a stone was left unturned. There was a trial a couple of months later, where both Pär and his mother Anna were sentenced to death 
for the murder of Hannah, Johan's daughter. Only circumstantial evidence was used to sentence Anna, Mon's daughter, who had neither confessed nor been seen near Hannah that night. Witnesses were brought forward, though, telling the court how Anna treated Hannah badly and wanted Pad to herself. During the trial, it was also revealed that Anna and Pad used to sleep in the same bed together. Even if no one had actually seen them be intimate, the court ruled that they were guilty of, and I quote, offending morality and decency by doing so. After the court ruling, there was a public uproar about the fact that Pad was sentenced for murder when the whole community knew it was Anna who wanted Hanna dead. Needless to say, the sentence was appealed. And this time the court took into consideration the fact that Pad was believed to have been sexually abused by his mother for many years. The court started looking at him as a victim, which changed the whole verdict. In the first court of appeals, Pad was sentenced to two years and nine months imprisonment for offending morality and decency, and six months of hard labor for the murder. And yes, you heard me correctly. He was punished harder for the intimate relationship he had with his mother than the murder of his wife. Anna's death sentence remained in the first court of appeals. People in the local community didn't like Anna at all, but Pad had always been a good citizen and he was well liked by everyone. According to the law, a death sentence had to be tried in a regional court to become final. And the third time around, without biased witnesses and officials with no connections to the town of Yngsjö, Pad was again sentenced to death. Pad and Anna were sent off to two different prisons. Anna ended up in the regional prison of Kristianstad in the south of Sweden, and Pad was sent to Longholmen prison in Stockholm. A little side note here about the Longholmen prison. It was officially called Longholmen Central Prison, and it was historically one of the largest prison facilities in Sweden, with more than 500 cells. It's located on the island Longholmen in the central parts of Stockholm. It was built between 1874 and 1880 as the central prison of Sweden. Today, the building is being used as a hotel, hostel, and a museum, as well as to accommodate a folk high school. The prison is also noted for being the location of the last execution in Sweden prior to the abolition of capital punishment in 1921. But now back to the story. Both Pad and Anna asked for pardon after their death sentences, but only Pad was eventually pardoned. More than 60 people of Yngsjö signed a petition to have Pad pardoned, 
and he also had many people constantly influencing the king, who was the only one with the power to pardon a death sentence. And it worked. Pash's death sentence was changed into life imprisonment at Longholmen Prison. He later served 23 years in prison until he was finally pardoned and set free on Christmas Eve of 1913. Due to the poor conditions in the prison, Pad had contracted tuberculosis, just like his father. The warden didn't want him to infect anyone else, so he released him out on the streets. Five years after his release, Pad died at the age of 56. Pad's mother, Anna Månsdotter, her death penalty was sustained even though her son, who actually committed the murder, was pardoned. The day of the execution came. It was August 7th, 1890. The executioner who was to carry out Anna Månsdotter's sentence was a 37-year-old man called Albert Gustav Dahlman. This was to be his very first execution. Originally, beheading by sword was reserved for the nobility, whereas the rest would be beheaded by axe or be hanged. By the 18th century, all beheadings were made by axe, for commoners and nobles alike, and some crimes such as forgery always carried the punishment of hanging. The execution of Anna Månsdotter was to take place in the prison yard of the Kristianstad prison. The young priest Malte Hasselqvist accompanied Anna Månsdotter out on the yard. According to witnesses, he was notably taken by the situation. His face was pale and he looked like he would faint at any minute. Anna Månsdotter was wearing a white dress, like she was dressed up for the occasion. Her eyes were wide open, and she looked really scared. There were about 70 people in the prison yard that day, invited especially for the execution of Anna. They watched as the priest, Malte, brought Anna Månsdotter over to the place prepared for the execution. The priest patted her on the shoulder, speaking to her in a calm voice. The executioner's assistant blindfolded her. Anna Monsdotter was crying loudly as she fell to her knees and her head was positioned correctly on the block. The executioner, Albert Gustav Dahlmann, was about to behead his first person ever, and he was understandably nervous and shaky. But what happened next is also believed to be due to a last-second sudden movement of Anna's head. And if you don't want to hear this part, just skip ahead about 15 to 20 seconds. Here we go. The executioner's brutal cut is slightly off. So instead of cutting her neck, the blade runs through the back of her head and out through her mouth. 
Her head rolls down from the block, but her chin and part of her tongue is still attached to her body. This was at 7.59 a.m. on August 7th, 1890. Anna was now executed, and as things turned out, she came to be the last woman to be executed in Sweden ever. The mistake by the executioner Dahlman was later called the Dalmanian mischap and resulted in an invention. Dahlman's eldest son, who was assisting him at executions, introduced a long rope along the prisoner's neck, tying it to the block. Right before the executioner raised his arm in preparation for the cut, the rope was tightened, preventing the person to move his head as the axe hit the neck. The victim in this story, Hanna Johansdotter, was buried in the graveyard at a church called Brösarps Church. She's in grave number 43 in the sea quarter. On her headstone, it says in Old Swedish that I've loosely translated into modern English. It says, The tears and sorrow of the poor woman didn't bother them at all. Hanna's parents, Hanna Andersson and Johan Olsson, were later buried next to her. And that was the story of Anna Månsdotter, the last woman to ever be executed in Sweden. Thank you so much for listening to episode 30 of True Crime Sweden. And thanks to Johanna for researching and writing this episode. If you want to reach me, you can do so by emailing me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden. If you want to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. And I want to send out a special thank you to one of my latest patrons, Olivier from Luxembourg, who made a very generous donation. Thank you so much, Olivier. But now it's time to get over to today's fun fact. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about the Swedish language and the differences to the English language. As you probably hear, I mispronounce words every now and then. The most difficult part in doing a podcast in English when being a Swede, I think, is the mix between the Swedish town names and the names of persons with the English language. Well, let me explain. When I speak to someone in English, I introduce myself as Pernilla, not Panilla, because I know that the way I say my name in Swedish is hard for an English-speaking person to pronounce. But when I cover cases, I want to use the real names of the people involved as they sound in Swedish, 
and switching between pronouncing something in Swedish with speaking English makes it really confusing and hard. For example, if someone is named Anna, it would make my flow better if I pronounced it Anna. Do you get what I mean? Like, Anna did this and Anna did this, instead of Anna did this. Then I have to mix the Swedish and the English. It's, it's really confusing in the brain. I don't know if you understand what I mean, but I hope you do. And we also have a lot of words from English in our language, but they are pronounced in a different way, in a Swedish way. For example, the letter J. In Swedish, instead of jeans, we say jeans. For an English-speaking person, that sounds like we use a Y in the beginning instead of a J, but it's spelled the same as in Swedish as it is in English, but it's pronounced jeans instead of jeans. And I think I talked about this before, about the V and the W. They are both pronounced as a V in Swedish. And for me, the English W sound, like in work, weather, and when, is kind of the English way. So for example, the sentence, she was very worried, can really make me crazy when I have to switch between W and the V sound. Was very worried. A lot of times I have to redo that kind of sentence several times before I'm satisfied when I record. That's a little insight to my recording. And I believe I heard somewhere that the Swedish language is one of the hardest to learn as an adult. We have the sh sound in the beginning of several words. For example, the Swedish word for skirt is shul. It's spelled K-J-O-L. And it's pronounced shul. And another example is the Swedish word for chain. It's kedja. That's spelled K-E-D-J-A. And now it's a K that sounds like sh instead of a K-J, like in the word for skirt. And we also have a different kind of sh sound. For example, the word for guilty, skyldig. It's spelled S-K-Y-L-D. I-G. Write that down and try to pronounce it. It's pronounced skyldig. Skyldig. And the Swedish word for charming is charmig. It's spelled C-H-A-R-M-I-G. And also pronounced with that H sound in the beginning. Charmig. Charmig. Can you imagine learning how to spell in Swedish? Oh my. But I thought I'd try to teach you a few words in Swedish that you might find useful if you ever go to Sweden or if you meet a Swede. The first phrase is I don't speak Swedish. Repeat after me. Jag pratar inte svenska. And again. Jag pratar inte svenska. The second phrase is How much is that? Hur mycket kostar den? Hur mycket kostar den? 
let's get something more useful in here. This is how you order a large tap beer. En stor stark tack. And again. En stor stark tack. Or if you prefer wine. Ett glas vitt. That's for white wine. Or ett glas rött. That's for red wine. And some useful words. Hi in Swedish is hej. Thanks in Swedish is tack. You're welcome in Swedish is varsågod. Varsågod. Goodbye in Swedish is hej då. And that's what I say in the end of each episode. Hej då. Nice to meet you is trevligt att träffas. Trevligt att träffas. And now I'm going to be a little bit mean. I think you all should try to say the number seven in Swedish. You say sju. Sju. I believe that's pretty hard for an English-speaking person to say. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but try it. Well, so now you're all set when you meet a Swede. Or who am I kidding? Swedes understand English. But we are also very impressed by people who try to learn a few words in our language. So maybe it's useful after all. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hey, door.